This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. In the economically disruptive aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, legislators in Washington have agreed that additional investment in infrastructure is now an appropriate policy response. Officials at the federal and state levels are considering how best to invest in improving transit, schools, and facilities serving those in need, such as the recently approved $400 million project to rebuild the Soldiers' Home in Holyoke. Among the questions facing those managing large publicly funded projects is whether to adopt so-called project labor agreements, or PLAs, while building them. Though not a mandate to use only union labor, project labor agreements do require all contractors to hire through union halls, use union labor standards, pay union dues, and contribute to union benefits for all workers on the job. Supporters of such agreements insist these provisions benefit all workers and, owing to the contractual proscription from striking, ensure the job is completed at a reliable cost without interruption. Opponents, however, argue project labor agreements effectively eliminate the competitive advantages of non-union open shops and effectively exclude these firms that employed the majority of the Commonwealth's skilled laborers from competing for the work. This protection from competition, they contend, leaves taxpayers to pay more for public projects and thus needlessly waste precious public funds. My guest today is Suffolk University's economics professor, Jonathan Horton. Professor Horton's two research papers entitled The Effects of Project Labor Agreements in Massachusetts and Do Project Labor Agreements Raise Construction Costs examined the effects of PLAs on large public projects. In particular, his research looked into the cost to construct 126 public schools in communities across Massachusetts. By carefully comparing the cost of projects with PLAs and those without, Professor Horton's research on past projects offers readers clear insight into the likely effects of PLAs on future projects, providing taxpayers and policymakers with useful data when making their own decisions on PLAs. When I return, I'll be joined by Suffolk University professor Jonathan Horton. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Suffolk University professor Jonathan Horton. Welcome to Hubwonk, Jonathan. Thank you very much. All right. Um, project labor agreements, or PLAs as they're called, uh, is a concept that's a kind of a forefront of a debate right now in the Commonwealth, uh, owing uh, in no small part to it being considered as a provision in the building of a new $400 million soldier's home in Holyoke. Uh, this project was recently approved by Governor Baker. Before we discuss your research on, on uh, the effects of PLAs on projects like these, could you describe for our listeners, what is a project labor agreement? Well, a project labor agreement is an agreement that is made before asking for any bids on a project. An agreement that is made that when the bids go out, the contractors must use uh, labor hired through union halls and using union rules. So it constrains to some extent who will be eligible to bid on a project. So supporters of uh, these agreements, um, I'm assuming labor unions, um, argue that those agreements are beneficial for the projects where they're in place. 
what, what's their, their case for saying, please, uh, we think uh, PLA is beneficial to the project uh, manager? Well, the, the, there's a quid pro quo in these agreements. Uh, the idea, of course, is that in return for hiring union labor only or union approved labor only, uh, that the uh, project will, uh, there will be no strikes, no slowdowns, no lockouts, um, and that the work conditions will be more, more harmonious. The uh, proponents also argue that by using union labor, uh, they will be encouraging uh, the union efforts at apprenticeships and at ensuring that uh, the uh, sites are really safe. So uh, the idea really is that a safer, harmonious work space in return for just hiring through the unions. So everybody wins, the, the contractor and the, and the unions, uh, it's a, uh, the benefits redound to both, uh, uh, allegedly. So That's the story. <laughs> okay, let's, let's dive a little deeper. Um, is this a modern phenomenon? I, I have to confess, I wasn't aware of uh, this concept until fairly recently. Um, but where did the idea of project labor agreements first begin? Um, and you know, give us some color there. Well, the, the earliest efforts go back to the 1930s. The, the Grand Coulee Dam on the Columbia River was built with, uh, under a project labor agreement, as was the Shasta Dam in California a couple of years later. Um, and uh, such agreements have been used uh, in a number of other interesting areas, in building Cape Canaveral in Florida, in the Alaska Pipeline, and actually in uh, Disney World. Uh, and those are some of the more uh, dramatic cases. Of course, in the Boston area, the Big Dig was also undertaken uh, under a project labor agreement. This, of course, was the project that put the central artery underground uh, as it runs through Boston. Yes, we all remember it well, or at least I, I, I certainly remember those, that those well. Those were our age, certainly remember. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Has there long been a debate whether uh, they're useful? Um, again, you say it goes back to the 30s, so we've got a lot of data, a lot of projects, some with PLAs and some without. Has there always been a debate as to the merit of those PLAs? Yes, they, they've never been universally accepted. Um, the, and, and although there are a few private sector cases, like Disney World, where these were undertaken, they are almost exclusively uh, the provenance of government contracts at one level or the other. And of course, they only refer to construction projects, not to uh, any other areas. Um, so you find them at sometimes at the federal level, sometimes at the state level. And uh, in Massachusetts, more frequently, perhaps at the local level, the level of towns and cities of the Commonwealth. Uh, and and uh, interestingly, at the federal level, uh, different presidents have taken different approaches. Uh, George Bush Sr. was opposed to PLAs and so banned them. Bill Clinton followed and he wanted to make them mandatory, uh, though he softened that to a recommendation. Then Bush Jr. said, uh, no, they're not allowed. And Obama said, Yes, uh, they're encouraged. So the pendulum keeps swinging. 
but we do see a pattern there. Um, uh, (laughs) So um, now the PLAs have been debated here in Massachusetts. You you left out one project that had a significant uh, PLA um, uh, attachment to it, which was the Boston Harbor cleanup project. Um, This was a debate as to whether this was uh, when uh, offering, when imposing PLA on that project, um, it was challenged all the way up to the Supreme Court as an uh, uncompetitive violation of the National Labor Relations Act. Um, can you say more about what the Supreme Court had to say on the constitutionality of, of PLAs? Well, uh, the Supreme Court in, in 1993 actually said that it was constitutional. Mm-hmm. They uh, didn't say that it set a precedent for um, federal projects in general, but they accepted that this was a sufficiently complex uh, engineering project that uh, using a PLA was constitutionally justified. So uh, from big digs to harbor cleanups, uh, we know that PLAs are constitutional. In the case of when when we are considering whether to adopt uh, PLAs, uh, for instance, in building a library or a school, um, who decides uh, in a smaller project, not a harbor cleanup, those are rare, who decides whether to adopt a PLA in a town project like a school or a library? School, uh, things like schools and libraries, at least in Massachusetts, are uh, the preserve of towns and cities. Uh, I live in Arlington. Uh, my town is rebuilding the high school. And that project is run and managed by the town, which puts the project out to bid. Some of the funding is actually coming from the state, but Nonetheless, the decision about the PLA is made at the level of the town. And, uh, and that's, that's what we see in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, uh, in, in, in places that we've studied. Uh, indeed, it's coming from the, the town, but in your paper, you do point out that in the case of schools, on average, the, the, the state contributes as much as 70% to those projects. So whereas it's directed at the town level, it's, it's uh, substantially underwritten by the state itself. That's right, but the state is not insisting in these cases that PLAs be used. That has not happened, uh, at least not yet. I suppose potentially it could be made as a condition for receiving funds from the state, but uh, Massachusetts hasn't gone there. Okay, so I think we've set the stage well for your paper, or actually you have two papers. Uh, I did, uh, I'll mention um, uh, the first, <coughs> the effects of project labor agreements in Massachusetts. As also, and also uh, your subsequent paper, Do Project PLAs Raise Construction Costs? Um, let's cover some of your research and your findings in, in those papers. Um, what, which projects did your papers look at as, as the source of the data? The, the problem we, the question we were asking is, uh, do project labor agreements raise the cost of construction? And in order to do that, we need to try to compare as far as possible, like with like. And so we tried to identify a set of projects with and without PLAs where we could make a fairly clean comparison. And it turns out that a good way to do that was with school projects. So uh, starting in the 1990s, Massachusetts made a big push to fund school rebuilding. A lot of our stock of schools was uh, quite ancient. And so what we did is we actually identified um, 126 school projects in the greater Boston area um, 
that were undertaken between 1995 and 2003. So we wrote this paper a few years ago. That was the, uh, the, the population of projects of interest to us. And we only looked at fairly large projects. Projects had to be worth at least $5 million. The smaller projects uh, could easily be done uh, by almost any contractor and so were, were, and, and were too variable. And so of these 126 school projects, 21 of them had PLAs and the remaining 105 did not. But that then gave us the potential to make a comparison. And uh, that's, that's how we set up our, our comparison. Now, the, the first thing we did was a very simple comparison. We asked, what is the cost per square foot of construction uh, for the PLA projects and the non-PLA projects? And what we found was that the PLA projects cost about $18 more per square foot. This is using prices of, of 2001, but, but uh, you, you get the idea, uh, out of about $150 per square foot. So in round terms, PLAs were about 12 or 13% more expensive than non-PLA projects. And that's the simple comparison. Of course, that may not be quite fair because <coughs> maybe the PLA projects are the complicated projects, the difficult projects, the ones that would have cost more anyway. So what you'd like to then try to do is, is try to control for that effects, those effects. And this we did. Uh, this we did by uh, separate and uh, looking at projects. Uh, some of them are, were rebuilds, some were just rehabs. Uh, um, we also, uh, some, some projects are bigger than others and generally a bigger project will cost a bit less per square foot. Get some economies of scale uh, operating. So uh, we did a uh, regression analysis. So what does that do? It says that the price of construction, bid or actual, depends on whether it's a new project, the size of the project, and whether there's a PLA in place. And that is a technique for trying to isolate the effect of PLAs on cost. And when we did that, we found essentially the same result that basically PLAs were about 12% more expensive than non-PLA projects. Very interesting for our, our um, listeners who aren't data analysts. Um, uh, of course, what you're trying to do, as you mentioned, is compare like with like. You don't want to uh, uh, have a, create an artifact that's a, a function of, of some other com confounding factor, right? A complex or uh, a school over here may just inherently be cost more and happen to be uh, built by PLA, right? So what you do is first, uh, add up the PLAs and divide, add up the non-PLAs and divide and say, which is more expensive? That's at the very high level. Uh, but then you tested that with uh, what you call regression analysis and found some level of confidence that it's indeed, when factoring for whether it's a new project or a refurbishment or a big project or a small project, you still found persistent cost premium with PLAs. That is correct. That's correct. And, uh, and in order to be confident of results like this, you need enough observations. So when you mentioned we had two papers, in our first paper, we had about 70 observations. 
But we felt we needed more observations to increase our level of confidence in the results. And the only way to do that was to wait a few years until a few more schools had been built and then add them to our database, which we did. And it did increase our confidence in this PLA cost premium effect. I'll wade into just one more technical detail in regression analysis. We do what's called R squared, and we come up with a confidence level called a p-value, which indicates the likelihood that our 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 observations are wrong. Um, again, we may have lost some of our listeners here, but what was the p-value for for your observation? What's the confidence that you're right, or let's say, what's the possibility or probability that you're wrong? Our p-values were less than uh, 0.01. So, in other words. Uh, we are at least 99% confident that the effect that we're picking up is not just a random effect, but actually shows something. Um, so uh, that, that, that just means we know there's something. It doesn't guarantee that it's 12% or 10%, but that magnitude feels uh, seems about right. And it looks like that's fairly accurately measured. All right. Well, so we, we can reliably uh, assess that PLAs add to the cost of, of a construction project. Now, uh, in your first paper, you mentioned you put a face on that number. You, you know, 12% may sound like a, a trivial amount, uh, but these are taxpayer dollars. Uh, I, uh, you mentioned three towns, Malden, Wilmington, Milton. Um, can, you, can you put a number or a face on how much that kind of a, a premium um, costs to those taxpayers in those towns? But at the time, um, in Malden, uh, the additional cost of a PLA would have been about $5 million. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, similarly, in, in, in Wilmington. Uh, let's, let's go to Arlington uh, today, uh, where we're building a school that uh, the bid came in actually at quite a competitive level at $234 million. That's, that's a lot of money. Um, but there is no PLA in this case. Had there been a PLA, we would have expected about an extra $35 million to that cost. And uh, $35 million uh, to be covered by a town of 45,000 people uh, becomes quite a lot of money. So I'm, I'm rather happy as a local taxpayer <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that, 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 that we saved something from my bottom line. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure our listeners are of two minds. Uh, uh, perhaps, uh, like me, they're uneasy about the idea that taxpayers are paying substantially more money uh, unnecessarily. Um, but there's probably also uh, those who believe that these agreements ensure the, the labor used to build your school um, uh, is getting the benefits they deserve. Um, and so those additional costs are justified. I, I want to go a little bit deeper on the implication of PLAs into the economics of the mechanics of how PLAs actually do impose higher costs. As an economist, what is the mechanism by which a, a PLA would create additional costs? Well, let me start actually with the effect, one uh, non-difference, which sounds sort of odd, and that is wages. Um, all uh, government-supported projects, construction projects, must pay the so-called prevailing wage. And Massachusetts uh, produces very detailed information. There's a 34-page uh, document that sets out the prevailing wages for each type of construction worker for this year, next year, and the next you know, five years. Uh, so if you're a backhoe operator or a mason or and so on, 
it sets out the amounts that you must be paid. Uh, those are actually rather high numbers. They're certainly higher than people seem to be making on average. But whether or not you use a PLA, you've got to pay the prevailing wage on these projects. So the difference in cost between a PLA and a non-PLA is not related to unions paying higher wages mm -hmm. uh, because they would have to be by law the same. So what is it about? And I think that's, that's, a, that's really a great question. Um, the, it's really much more about the organization of work. So if you are a non-union contractor, typically over the years, you built up a group of trustworthy workers with whom you operate. Uh, you have some flexibility in what people can do. So they can pitch in doing that, or they can switch to doing something else if that's what's needed. Uh, and so you've got a group of people with whom you work very well. Now, if you instead have to work through union um, halls to do your hiring, you may not be able to hire exactly the people that you're used to working with. Moreover, you may find that you will have to follow union rules, work rules. And the union rules that apply to working on a building site are, are typically more rigid than the rules that apply if uh, you don't have those union rules. So a lot of it, it really comes down to the practical way in which you can manage your workforce on the building site. And uh, those, uh, the, the union rules build in an inefficiency. Now, those who favor PLAs might argue, well, aren't those going to lead to greater safety? Well, there's no evidence that the uh, non-PLA projects have a worse safety record than the union PLA uh, safety record. So I don't think the safety argument actually holds any water. Organization of work is really what it's all about. So we've taken off the table the notion that uh, PLAs pay workers more, and are, we've taken off the table that they create a safer work environment. So we're left with this um, competition between union shops and non-union shops. And what you're suggesting is the flexibility that non-union shops offer their own employees, perhaps working part-time, uh, maybe they're, um, they want flexibility to be a plumber in the morning and an electrician in the afternoon, whatever that happens to be. Uh, you're saying by imposing PLAs, you take away that competitive advantage of non-union shops uh, and therefore make it less likely for them to compete. Do I have that about right? Yes, that's right, that's right. Uh, now, there may be a few other things that uh, add a little bit. Uh, when you, uh, under a PLA, you may only hire through the union. So any, anyone who isn't already a member of a union will have to join the union, pay union dues, possibly uh, contribute to the union pension, which may be over and above the pension arrangements that the non-union contractor has already. So there may be a, a few other practical higher expenses, but I do think most of it is really related to the nature of work. So uh, the PLA can, in effect, have the um, can cause non-union open shops not to compete. Do you have any data on uh, whether uh, uh, non-union shops, when looking at a PLA, just say, "Look, it, it's not worth it. The uh, the disruption to our model is is too severe. We're not going to bid on this." Did you do any research in that regard? Well, we don't have the type of large data set on this that we would like. We have a couple of anecdotes. Uh, let me give you a couple of these. 
Um, in, in 2005, uh, Ed Lambert, who was the mayor of Fall River, um, put out to bid three school projects uh, and um, uh, put in place a PLA. And uh, the problem is that when the bids came in, the total cost was uh, $86 million, and they had expected it to be about $63 million. All right, sometimes bids come in more than you expect, so uh, that maybe wasn't so surprising. But what they did um, in Fall River was they said, well, let's try rebidding the project without a PLA, which they did. And they got substantially more bids, especially on the sub-components of the projects. And the uh, total bids came in um, about 6% below the, uh, the, the bids under the PLA. So that, that's an anecdote. And, uh, but it suggests that when you take off the PLA constraints, more people bid, and they bid more competitively. So I think that's... Uh, that, that's one example. Another example we had was we talked to a contractor who actually has two companies. Um, they're, 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 one is for bidding on um, PLA-type projects, uh, and the other is um, for cases where there's no PLA. And uh, he was telling us that uh, on the PLA projects, they cost him about 15% more than the non-PLA projects but he does try to bid on both. Mm -hmm. uh, anecdotes, definitely. But nonetheless, they suggest that uh, something real is going on. I see. And again, if we're uh, talking about uh, your experience in doing this research, is there a profile uh, or change, a difference in profile between union shops and non-union shops? I'm imagining um, uh, our data suggests that it's 87%, in fact, of uh, skilled labor in, in the Commonwealth that are non-union. So seven out of eight, um, how do they differ from those that are our union? I'm imagining uh, there's smaller shops or maybe um, entrepreneurs, uh, perhaps run by um, a, uh, a higher degree of people of, of color or of, of women or uh, uh, immigrant communities. Did you get any color as to what uh, the, the relative profile of a non-union shop versus an open shop? Well, traditionally, of course, the union shops were the bigger firms. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way you got into the business, if you didn't join uh, one of those large firms, you set up on your own and you were non-union and you gradually grew. What has happened over the years is that uh, some of the um, non-union shops have grown very large. Um, and so now there are large and highly sophisticated firms that are non-union that are in a position to bid on complex projects that might not have been the case 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that has definitely changed. Uh, but it is still uh, a reasonable generalization that the, um, uh, the non-union uh, shops tend to be smaller. There is actually a debate about uh, what fraction of uh, construction workers are unionized in Massachusetts. Um, the, um, the Department of Labor, Bureau of Labor Statistics data suggests it's about 13% or maybe less, but some union advocates argue that effectively it's more like 40% if you exclude all the tiny little contractors that are doing yard work. 
So there is a bit of a debate about this. And the reason that this is relevant is if you are in an area where there is nothing but union shop, ELA will uh, have no practical uh, importance one way or the other, because the only bidders are going to be union uh, shops. But if you're in an area where um, the bulk of workers are not in union shops, then PLAs potentially become quite restrictive. And I think we're at that point in Massachusetts. Now, the other thing is that historically, um, unions have not always been very open to hiring of women and minority workers. And so again, historically, if you were forced to hire through unions, you were, more you were less likely to get that diversity in your labor force that um, non-union shops tend to have. Um, we, in our research, were not in a position to dig deep enough to get this type of information. So what I say is, is more uh, an impression of how these institutions work than it is a, a rigorous academic uh, exercise. But clearly, we we have some research ahead of us. Yes, indeed, the data on race uh, may not exist, so you can't do analysis of, of data that doesn't exist. I, I want to circle back. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our time together on a, on a, a benefit of PLAs that uh, unions assert that with, with PLAs, there's not going to be any concern for interruptions in, in project work. Is that sort of a... Uh, for lack of a better term, a thinly veiled threat that without a PLA, uh, there may indeed be work interruptions imposed by uh, perhaps disgruntled union workers. Is, is that real or uh, uh, not? Um, I think you could interpret it that way. Uh, however, um, whether it's a real threat or a bit of an empty threat is the real question here. And what we see is that the non-PLA projects have tended to go ahead just fine. They haven't been interrupted particularly. I remember when we presented uh, uh, some of our work at a public forum, um, it was well attended by, uh, by union officials uh, who were quite vocal in protesting what we did. And, and it was... Uh, no, it wasn't intimidating, but it was, you know, it was a tense atmosphere, let's put it that way. But I think that uh, that type of intimidation is a little harder to pull off than, than it once was. And so I'm, I, I think, practically speaking, at least in Massachusetts, that doesn't seem to be a big issue. If it were a bigger issue, we'd see far more PLAs than we do. So I think the, you know, flinty Yankees that run our towns and, and cities seem to be well aware of the cost implications and they're, they're sticking to their taxpayer guns. Well, that's very good to hear. And again, I, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that you don't think there's actually any actual intimidation, maybe, you know, some um, un, unsubstantiated uh, in, intimidated intimidation. Um, so given that the, the, uh, those managing these projects are flinty Yankees, as you say, uh, and want to get the most for their dollar, why, if given your uh, uh, research suggests, we can reliably predict all projects will cost 12% more? And, and I ju just did some back-of-the-napkin calculations. If we apply that 13% premium to the soldier's home in Holyoke, that's $52 million spent on nothing um, uh, of taxpayer money. Um, why would flinty Yankees ever uh, agree to a PLA? Well, um, why, do, why, why do politicians 
make the decisions they do. They, they get swayed, among others, by people who help their campaigns and, and contribute to their political campaigns. Um, and uh, so that's, that's a sort of a political economy story that uh, unions have, have strong political presence and hope for some type of payoff. Um, and that's you know, a perfectly legitimate activity in a democracy. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't have to accept that it's for the public good, but we have to accept that uh, there are these pressures that, that, that hit decision makers. Um, and not everything decided by government is always in the greater public good. I, I would that it were. We'd live in a lovely world. <laughs> So, so you established there's really no public benefit to PLAs, but there is a, a union benefit, and those unions have political power. And effectively, they're saying, okay, in exchange for um, supporting our PLA, we will uh, support you as a, a politician. So it's a yes. quid pro quid pro quo. That's correct. And, and I think it's, it's, no, it's no accident that at the federal level, uh, Democratic presidents have been relatively um, favorable favorably disposed towards PLAs and Republicans have been opposed to them. And that also reflects the uh, political support um, for Democrats from unions, uh, which although not universal is, is, is substantial. Uh, it's, and that's the political economy story. Sure. And the world is run by those who show up and union members show up, they contribute, they vote. Uh, and so their will is, is, um, is respected in the uh, at the federal and state level uh, but given the government doesn't have its own money it only has yours and i money those people who are non-union members uh, need to um in a sense uh, show up at the town hall as well uh contribute and encourage uh alternative uh let's say non-pla uh, projects I, I guess that's implied in in your statement yes and I, and i think they do i think they do in their own in their own way um by focusing on the bottom line by, uh, I mean, you are right that uh, in, in local government in Massachusetts, not everybody turns up to make decisions. But uh, on the other hand, there's a there's sort of a well of people who do and, um, and, and, and are civically engaged and keeping an eye on these sort of things, maybe more than we might fully realize sometimes. Well, I'd say uh, our listeners here at Hubwonk um, are those type of civically engaged folks who like, like to be informed, understand policy choices. Um, so for the benefit of those who don't want to sit idly by and, and are you know, energized by our conversation, what can an average voter, uh, whether they be in, in Arlington or here in Boston, uh, what, could, what should um, activated um, interested parties do to ensure um, that projects go uh, the way they prefer that they go? Well, uh, obviously, get informed. Um, most of the time, you wouldn't necessarily know whether a project is going to be under a project labor agreement or not. So the question, is it? Uh, when uh, schools or libraries are going to be built or renovated, ask the question. Write a letter to the paper. Go along to a meeting. Uh, send a note to your local representative. Um, just asking the question puts it on the agenda in a way that wouldn't otherwise be the case. Um, Scott Lehigh in the Boston Globe wrote about this a couple of, couple of days ago. Well, then write a letter to the Globe uh, expressing your opinion. Um, it'll be seen, it'll be read, it'll, it'll have a little effect. Um, ask candidates at candidate forum or go along to the local precinct meeting. And, and, and again, 
ask the questions. And when you have a reasonable answer, express yourself along the lines that um, these folks are being well paid for the work, so I'm not worried about that. Given that, let's make sure that our taxpayer dollars are, are efficiently used. And that's a very, uh, very honorable position to take. Wonderful. That's, that's a great place to uh, end our show with a um, call to action uh, and prescription for how to best effectively use one's time to, to, um, to, to, uh, to improve uh, the lot of our uh, taxpayers and, and, frankly, the students who occupy those schools or uh, libraries. Um, they'll get more books if they spend less on building the, the structure, right? Absolutely. In, in Arlington, we got a good bid on our high school, and as a result, we've actually decided to put back a couple of the bells and whistles, some of those bike racks that uh, had been cut out earlier on. Uh, we'll appreciate that. Right, certainly. And schools, the benefits of schools should redound to the children who are in them, right? Wonderful. That sounds well, like a reasonable proposition. Well, well, thank you very much for your for your time, Professor Horton. This has been wonderful, very informative to our listeners at Humboldt. I, I, I'm grateful for you joining us today. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate this. I've enjoyed it a lot. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. I'm Joe Salvaggi. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support the podcast. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your podcatcher. If you would like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be helpful if you offer us a five-star rating or a favorable review. And of course, it's always useful to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions for future episode topics or comments or questions for me, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.